up, everybody? Good morning. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City. If you're just visiting, uh, we are uh, very excited, very happy to see you here. Um, and uh, we thank you for coming out. Thanks for uh, being here with us this morning to uh, worship together and to spend time in community. Um, we, we love it. So uh, we have been in a little, just kind of a mini sermon series in the book of Psalms lately. Um, we're actually going to be wrapping it up after this week. Uh, we're going to be starting um, a sermon series through the book of Ruth starting next week. So that should be really fun. Um, uh, Julie's been actually hard at work kind of preparing that one. So that's going to be really fun. Um, for us to kind of just dive into that that little book, it's it's not like a it's not a long book. It's a pretty short one, and it tells a pretty simple story. But it's a really like deep and profound story uh, about God and the gospel. So um, looking forward to that. Um, today we are, uh, like I said, though we are wrapping up this kind of mini sermon series in the book of Psalms, and we're going to be spending some time in uh, Psalm seventy five today. Uh, now, Psalm 75 is just a psalm of praise. There's actually like no discernible prayer request really within the psalm, uh, which I think is just kind of interesting to just kind of in and of itself to pause and reflect on. Um, if the psalms are, you know, among many things, a, like a prayer book for us uh, to kind of t- teach us how to pray, I think it's just worth uh, noting that in this book there is a, a prayer, at least one, uh, that doesn't have any prayer requests in it. And I just was, uh, found myself struck as I was kind of contemplating that about how uh, often I actually pray where I'm not asking God for something. Like, I'm not, I don't have some prayer request attached to the prayer, and that's not, like, the whole reason I'm going to God in the first place. And I just think this is kind of, kind of a little challenge uh, to that. Um, and maybe just invite you to do the same thing. Like, ask the question, you know, what, what, when was the last time that I actually prayed and I didn't have some uh, 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 a request attached to that prayer? Right? When was the last time I prayed just for the sake of praising God or thanking God or confessing a sin to Him? Um, and so maybe just think about that. There's a mini sermon within the larger sermon for you. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, but let's let's move on to the to the psalm itself here. Okay, Psalm 75 uh, verses 1 to 3. It starts out: We praise you, God. We praise you for your name is near. People tell of your wonderful deeds. You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge with equity. When the earth and all of its people quake, it is I who hold uh, the pillars firm. Okay? So the psalm starts out by kind of identifying God, praising God, and identifying uh, certain uh, reasons or certain aspects of God uh, that, that are the reason for the praise. Okay? And, and those things that the psalmist uh, identifies is that God is like a doer of wonderful deeds. Uh, he is a judge, uh, and that's going to kind of uh, form actually the, the, the central uh, heart of the psalm as we move forward. Um, he's the one who holds the uh, pillars of the earth secure, and he's also near. Your name is near, the, the psalm says. And that's probably just a reference actually to the temple, right? If you're an ancient Israelite, um, you believe your God is near you, and you can say that specifically because you have a building in your capital city of Jerusalem or in the tabernacle, kind of pre-Jerusalem uh, period, where there is actually your God is dwelling with you. Um, his name, his presence is dwelling with you. So he is actually near to you. He's not far off. He's not um, up in the sky judging things, you know, kind of, kind of apart from you. He is actually near you, right? And that's, that's a belief uh, that the Israelites hold very dear, and it's very important to them that their God dwells with them. Um, 
Okay, so that's kind of, kind of how the, the psalmist identifies God here. Now, I think it's really important that we uh, understand that the psalmist is, is positioning him or herself so that they understand who it is that they're praying to. And I think it's really important for us to do the same thing as well, right? It's important for us to kind of have an understanding of who we're going to in prayer. Um, and actually, that will make it a little bit easier to not just go with, with prayer requests and treat God like, like he's Amazon or something like that. Right? When we actually are identifying God as who he is, he's someone who is, is near us, he's someone who has done wonderful deeds, he, he holds the pillars of the earth firm. Right? When we see him as the one who holds the pillars of the earth firm, then we don't have to run to him in a panic to pray right? and, and think that like, if God doesn't answer my prayer request that I'm coming to him with, then you know, the, you know, everything's going to fall apart. Right? The world is, is just going to fall apart. We don't actually have to have that belief even as we go to him uh, with some prayer request. Now, the specific, like, wonderful deeds that the psalmist is identifying here are, are likely uh, rooted in the Exodus. Because if you're, if you're an Israelite, um, there is one central event that kind of forms, like, the heart of your worldview about who you believe that you are and who you believe God is. And that event is the Exodus. It's, it's the moment where, where God took his people and he set them free from slavery uh, in, the, in the nation of Egypt. Um, that is such an important uh, part of, of the worldview and the understanding of God that the Israelites have. And so in other psalms, you see the psalmist kind of going back to that, you know, more specifically. You'll see references to, um, like, the waters, right? Kind of like the Red Sea being parted or, or God coming down and, and smashing his enemies. This is usually, like, we should understand, like, how important of an event um, the, uh, the exodus is to them. And, and when we understand that, we can get a sense for why they would identify God uh, as a judge, one who judges with equity. Because um, this is the God who took down an empire, the, the, the empire of, of Egypt, and the king, of, the king Pharaoh, who kind of saw himself as, as king over everything, like the most important human being in the entire world, God took them down and, 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 and did it in, in an act of, like, vindication for the crying out of, of the Israelites, right? If you're in a pet, oppressed people group, right, and, and someone acts to liberate you, you see them as, like, a just judge because you understand that they see your plight, they understand the oppression that's going on for you, and they've acted on your behalf. So, of course, you're going to see that person um, as a just judge, and that's going to form your view of that person, and that's how uh, the Israelites view God. Because of his wonderful deeds, they're able to see him as, as this just judge who acted for them in this time of need, in, in time of greatest need, really, um, on their behalf. You would see him as totally just. Judging with equity is what, what the psalm says here. All right, so that kind of explains a little bit of, of what's going on here. And it will actually help us to understand uh, what's going on in the psalm as we move forward. Let, let's do that. Let's move forward to the verses 4 and 5. To the arrogant, I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift up your horns against heaven and do not speak so defiantly. It's not totally certain if this is the psalmist speaking here or if it's God himself speaking. But regardless, there's some opposition that's rising up uh, against God here. And it's trying to kind of set themselves up a, a, against God a, as superior to him, right? And that, so th- th- this is the response to those people. And, and they're talking about lifting up their horns against heaven, all right? So just to help you understand what that's talking about, Robert Alter, he's a, he's a Jewish scholar in his commentary in the book of Psalms. He says, this commonplace of biblical poetry 
imagery, he's talking about the horns specifically, probably drawn from the image of the large curving horns that the ram used to gore its uh, natural enemies as a symbol of assertive power. The conventional horn image becomes a vivid representation of the arrogant displaying their power presumptuously. The image stands as a spatial indication of loftiness of pretension to superiority. Right? So if we were rewriting this psalm, you know, we probably wouldn't talk about horns because it wouldn't make any sense to us. Right? But if we, were, if we were rewriting the psalm, we'd say like, man, these people are flexing on God or something like that. Right? That's how we would put it in our parlance. These people are trying to assert their authority over and against God. Okay? And so this is kind of a response to them. Now verses 6 and 7. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. So no one from any region or culture has superiority to be the true judge. That's what the psalm is saying, right? Only God can do that. And he, at his prerogative, uh, raises some up and, 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 and uh, brings some down. Okay, so, so what they're saying is like, God is the just judge. He's the, he's the doer of wonderful deeds, right? Um, but he's also the one that truly judges justly, right? Everyone comes from uh, some kind of perceived bias, right? No matter how woke we are, we still have some sort of like, uh, some sort of like bias that we're bringing into things, right? Not so with God. He does not see with bias. He does not see according to the ways that we do, judging by where one, where one is from, whether they're from the east or the west or from the desert. Okay? No one can exalt themselves to this place that God occupies. Only he is able to judge. Verse 8. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Okay, so he, he, th- this is like a common kind of metaphor for God's wrath or justice going out. You maybe have seen this in other places. In, in, in the Old Testament specifically, it talks about God, uh, in the book of Revelation as well, kind of you see this imagery. Like God bringing his justice or his wrath against enemies is, is talked about like him pouring a cup out on them, a cup of wine that's mixed with these spices. And, and the wicked are supposed to drink this. And that's kind of like symbolic of them uh, taking God's wrath on them, okay? Now, don't worry, we're going to talk more about this as we go forward, because I, I realize like, there's, a, there's maybe some baggage that can come with it, right? Or, or this idea of seeing God as like this one who pours out his wrath on his enemies, kind of willy-nilly, making him drink up every drop of this, right? That maybe makes us a little bit uncomfortable, right? In, in our understanding of who God is, right? Or maybe you love it, I don't know. But, like, but for sure, this kind of offends some of our modern sensibilities. Okay? So I do want to talk about that. I think it's really important, but just kind of... Kind of um, Hold on to that, right? Put it on a piece of gum and, and stick it under your chair and get it later, okay? Well, we'll come back to it. Verses 9 and 10. As for me, I will declare this forever. I will sing praises uh, to the God of Jacob, who says, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. So the psalm ends with this victorious exultation that the just judge, God, has triumphed. Okay, he's conquered his enemies. He's cut their horns down to size, right? Just like in the Exodus, right? Maybe this is actually, I don't know for sure, we're supposed to see a resonance of the Exodus here. Regardless, this is the God who continues to act in that way for Israel, right? He cuts down, the, cuts off the horns of the wicked. And in, instead of their horns, you know, in, in place of their horns, um, those who are righteous have their horns now lifted up. 
Now, the word righteous here just means in the right, like declared right before God, in right standing before God. So the ones who are, who are right before God, he lifts their horns up, right? That's, that's an act of his justice or, or his, 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 his equity is raising up uh, the fortunes or the horns of the righteous, just like in the Exodus, right? Kind of how we talked about, right? And how that would be so important um, if, if you're an Israelite to understand that, like, we were righteous and God vindicated us by setting us free over and against our oppressive uh, enemy, okay? So that's kind of what, what we see here, right? God is, he's literally their savior, and that's how they view him, because he, he has cut off the horns of the, of the wicked and raised up their horns, okay? Now, um, if that's you, right, if you are an Israelite, it's easy to understand why you would have that view of God and why you would, you would feel so rooted in, like, the justice or the, good, the goodness of this judge, right? Because he acted on your behalf, but if we're honest, like, the idea, like, just of judges in general is not one that we're always, like, like, we don't always rejoice in judges, and we don't maybe want to connect God to a judge, right? Because we actually, like, are not, like, huge fans of, of judges or, or, or justice systems, right? Like, Julie and I watch, we watch a lot of legal shows because because we just think they're really fascinating. But, like, you see all these corrupt judges in the shows a lot of times, right? Or people who are taking bribes or, or kind of, like, just are shady people behind the scenes, right? And, and like, we, we don't, like, trust judges a lot of times kind of outside of that because we're afraid that they're too partisan, right? Like, that's, like, a huge uh, a core of the debate framing who should be on the Supreme Court is we basically don't trust anyone because we're afraid they're too liberal or too conservative and we just assume that they'll, they're robots who will vote based on their political leanings, right? So we just don't trust the idea of judges today in our society. So, so, um, so like, to compare God to a judge maybe is one that we are not, like, an ex- it's not an exciting thing to do for us. We'd rather compare God to some other different things, okay? Now, despite all that, despite us, like, not knowing how we feel about judges or the justice system, right, we're actually a very, uh, we actually really do like justice, though. We're, we're very much about righteousness in this society. We're very uh, moralistic. N.T. Wright, he puts it like this. I think this captures it really well. We haven't lost all moral sense, as some would say. Ours is, in fact, a very moralistic age. Consider the sheer moral fury of those who protest about for instance, fox hunting. It's just that we've changed the moral targets. Okay? We live in a very justice-oriented age, a very moralistic society, he says. And he brings up fox hunting, and I'll be totally honest, I have no clue what he's referencing there. He's British, and this book was written in like 2006, so I have no clue. But the fact that you can imagine a friend that you have who's really upset about fox hunting, just the fact that you like, are like, I could think of, I probably have a friend who I could see them like this is their cause one week, right, is the fox hunting. The fact that we can picture that kind of makes the point for us, right? Like, I think that just kind of like shows us where we're at. We, we really are about justice and righteousness in our society, but the moral targets change, and they can vary from person to person. He continues on. People who would be horrified to have an older sexual morality imposed on them for their own good are eager to impose a new ecological morality on others for their own good. So he's just talking about like, like, um, a, like a, a, a consciousness about the environment. That's what he's talking about, ecological there. This is a recipe for moral confusion, and there's plenty of that right about now. 
And all over the Western world, people are asking where on earth we go for here, from here. So what he's saying is like the problem isn't morality. It's not righteousness, and it's not wrath or justice against unrighteousness or wickedness. Okay? That's not the problem. Because okay? we all really deep down, like none of us really believe that the problem is doing uh, justice against unrighteousness. Right? It's just that we can't agree uh, on on, on who is the, the one who decides that, right? And so a lot of times we take it on ourselves, right? But we don't want others to push their morality on us, right? And, and it just creates a lot of moral confusion for us, okay? Now, if that's all true, right? If we are really this, you know, as moralistic as, as he's saying, and as I, I think, he, I think um, he's right in saying that, then we shouldn't cringe when we read about God pouring out his own justice or, or wrath against unrighteousness, right? If, if, if we're content to, to do it ourselves or to think that this exists, we shouldn't be uncomfortable when we see psalms like this talking about God pouring out his righteousness against unrighteousness, right? We, that shouldn't make us uncomfortable. But it, what it should make us do is it, it should cause us to try to understand God more. It should ca- cause us to really uh, dive into what it looks like for God to exercise his righteousness or his justice against wickedness in this world, right? If, if we care about it as much as we do, then we should strive to understand what the creator, what the, what the Bible says is this just judge has to say about, about how he acts towards unrighteousness, okay? But in order to do that, like, we can't make proper sense of the psalm that we just talked about without, uh, without bringing in uh, Jesus, right? We have to, we have to understand um, what the revelation of God in Christ tells us about his, his being the judge, right? And so that means that we need to read our Bibles um, Christocentrically, okay? And that's our first point of application today. We need to be people who are, are consistently reading our Bibles Christocentrically. That means like Christ-centered, right? The center of it is Christ. We have to see Christ as kind of the, the fullest revelation or understanding of whatever text we're reading, especially in ones where, we, where he doesn't necessarily show up. We have to train ourselves to do this well in order to really make sense of passages like the one that we're reading today, okay? Um, imagine that you had like a mountaintop, right? It's, it's, it's high up in the air and there's a lake on the top of the mountain, okay? And out of this lake flows two rivers. One goes north, one goes south. So they're flowing in opposite directions, but they're coming out of the same uh, lake on the top of this mountain. And that, that mountain, it, from its distinguished point up near the heavens, is the place where this water's flowing down from. We need to read our Bibles in the same way. Whether it's Old or New Testament, we have to see that whichever way that water's flowing, right, it's flowing from that same river, which is Christ. Okay? Even if we don't quite understand, we can't quite see the path up to that lake on the top of that mountain, we have to understand with the revelation of Christ that the water is ultimately coming from that place, even if we don't always understand that, okay? And this is so fundamental to how, how we as Christians uh, read our Bibles. We have to understand that everything in Scripture is downstream from the revelation of Jesus Christ, okay? And so to make sense of the psalm, we have to be able to read it Christocentrically. So that's what we're going to do, okay? I want us to, to kind of dive in and find out how every single like, longing for justice that we have, as individuals, as a culture, are found in the justice, not just of God the judge, but of Christ the judge, okay? So to kind of make sense of that, I want to go to a place in, in, in Matthew 20, all right? And we'll read a couple of verses from it here, all right? Verses 20 and 22. 
Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. So this is a story where, where Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and, and a couple of the disciples, their brothers, James and John, um, come, to, uh, come to Jesus and, and ask if, if when he brings his kingdom that his, her sons could kind of sit on his right as it left. So just have these prominent places within this new administration, right? Can you make one the secretary of defense and the other, like, you know, the secretary of, of labor or whatever, you know, just like, I'm trying to, like, secure a spot for my sons here. So um, I just love how it says she asked a favor of Jesus, too. I just think that that, that sounds so funny. I don't know. I don't, it's probably... Like not, not a good translation there, but it, it just sounds funny. She asked a favor of Jesus, like, like it's a small thing, right? But this is actually like a really big thing she's asking for her sons. Okay? And she's kind of like being a snowplow parent here too, right? She's just kind of coming in and like trying to set up everything for her sons so that when, when Jesus does bring his kingdom, they're going to be in like prominent position within it, right? Um, and like, so here's the thing. She's not wrong about the fact that Jesus is going to bring his kingdom to earth, right? She's actually 100% right about that. That's, uh, Jesus has been talking about this throughout the whole book of Matthew. That's one of the central themes of all four of the Gospels, is that Jesus is bringing his kingdom to bear on earth, okay? So, so um, the, the disciples and, and this mother understand that, right? They've caught that fact from Jesus, and, and they've, they've really made that um, a part of their understanding of the movement that they're a part of, Okay? But what they want is they want the ability to get to, to help decide where the cup of justice is going to get poured out on once Jesus takes his seat of power, okay? They want, the, they want to be able to help make that decision, right? Because that's what's going to happen when Jesus establishes his kingdom, right? Justice is going to flow forth from there, okay? And if you're a first century Jew, you look at your circumstances as being not that dissimilar to the time when you were in slavery, in the Exodus, in the, the other time of the Exodus. These are people who have been under the thumb of multiple uh, empires for the last four or five hundred years, right? And, and currently they're, they're, they're under the thumb of Rome, right? Rome who, who is, you know, they're not slaves to Rome, although some Jews for sure were slaves in this, in this country. Um, but but they're, they're, they're not the kingdom that they expected, right? And so they want to see justice done against their oppressors. They still view, they're still our oppressors, right? They're still waiting for God to act on their behalf and vindicate them, just like he did in the Exodus, okay? So they want to kind of be a part of that justice coming out. And that's why there's, one of the reasons they're so excited about Jesus coming. Now, Jesus gives a somewhat uh, shocking answer, though, to, to this mother when, when she, when she um, asks this question, because because especially if you have a view of God that he exercises his judgeship in a way where he just smites his enemies, right? He crushes them under the weight of his cup being poured out, okay? This is his response to, to the mother here. You don't know what you're asking, okay? So he kind of first does the face palm, right? You just, you really, you don't know what it is you're asking here, right? You, you're showing a fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink, okay? So the cup comes back, right? The cup we talked about of God's wrath that gets poured out in Psalm 75 shows up again here in Matthew 20, but it's not in the way you'd expect, right? You would expect Jesus to say, sure, yeah, like, let's, let's all get cups, right? And we'll, we'll all pour them out, right? The answer, though, that Jesus says is this kingdom is not going to come in the way that you think, because I'm not pouring out the cup of God's wrath onto my enemies. 
I'm going to drink that cup down to its very last drop, okay? And that's how this kingdom is going to come. Me, myself, the thing that makes me king, the king that, thing that makes me the just judge is that I am taking this justice of God, this wrath of God onto myself. I will drink that cup instead. So instead of pouring out justice on his enemies, Jesus looks at his enemies and said, I'm going to drink that cup on their behalf. And this is how this judge acts towards his enemies. Okay, this is the fundamental way that we understand who God is. When we read Christ, when we read our Bibles Christocentrically, when we read Christ as the judge, we see this is the definitive way that, that he acts towards his enemies, is by drinking the cup on their behalf instead of pouring it out. So that he can make them righteous and he can lift their horns up, right? And this is our second point of application, is we find our vindication in Christ and not in our own righteousness, right? Naturally, we read a psalm like Psalm 75, and we identify with the good guys, because that's how we do everything, right? Except for the occasional weird friend who looks at the villain of a movie and is, falls in love with that villain, um, right? We all maybe have a weird friend that's like, like that, but, but generally, we, like, we look at a movie, and we just like, we find ourselves in one of the heroes, right? So when we read Psalm 75, we think, well, of course, I'm the righteous one, and I'm waiting for God to kind of act on my behalf and lift up my horn against my enemies, Right? Whoever those enemies may be. The Bible has a different story, though, because um, Christ pours out his, his, or he raises up our horns in our righteousness by drinking the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. And that's what we're learning here, okay? Um, this, is, this is a different, like, type of judge than we normally want, right? Because there's kind of two types of ways we might look at a judge. One, we might either want a judge who overlooks everything, or, right, or who doesn't even really judge, or someone who does act and smashes our enemies, right? We want one of those two things, and Jesus is neither of them, right? Because um, he, he isn't going to sign up for who or what we think is righteous and vindicate us because we're so great, okay? He doesn't say, like, hey, look, these this people are, you know, they read their Bibles a lot this week, so they must be pretty righteous, and so I'm going to act and answer their prayers today, right? He doesn't look at us and say, man, that, that, that person's really woke like me, so, I, you know, I, they're righteous, right? That's not how he acts, right? He looks at us and says, this is a group of people who are, who are part of the problem, right? But I want to vindicate them and make them righteous. And by doing that, I'm going to drink the cup for them instead of seeing that cup poured out on them, okay? We're not going to put God in our debt to receive a favorable, favorable verdict. We're not going to rig the trial. The only way that we're going to be vindicated as righteous is by finding our righteousness in the judge who, who drinks the cup on our behalf, Okay? And that's the, that's the thing that we learn from this psalm when we pair it up with, with, with uh, the book of Matthew here. When we get this full picture of Jesus, the just judge, on our behalf. Okay? And our third point of application, the, the one we're kind of land the plane with here, is, is not just to find our vindication in Christ, but then to now go out and, and judge like Christ does. Right? To, to kind of take our cue for how we act in terms of righteousness and morality in a Christ-like way. Okay, to, to, we, we not only read our Bibles Christocentrically, but we live Christocentrically as well. Okay? The, you know, I talked about how moralistic we are, and, and, right, and finding right and wrong is good. Right? We need to find right and wrong, and we find that in our just judge. But we also find out the way we act towards our enemies through Christ himself and how he acts towards his enemies. We, f- we find this in, in the, actually the Matthew passage that we were in doesn't end where we just were at. Let's, let's keep going and see what else happens here. So, uh, verses 24 to, to 25. When the ten heard about this, okay, this is the other ten disciples. Jesus had 12 disciples, and the two of them are, are actively plotting to try and uh, 
you know, make themselves like bigwigs within the, uh, within the new administration that they expect to be coming down here. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. It's understandable, right? And you're like, hey, well, James and John are trying to like jockey for position inside the kingdom when Jesus uh, creates it. Okay, so Jesus calls them together. He d- d- decides like, this seems like a teachable moment. They're all mad at each other. It seems like a good time to kind of set them all straight. Okay, so he calls them together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and that their high officials uh, exercise authority over them. Okay, he says, listen, this is how you're used to things being done. People are set in authority, and they, they lord it over those in authority, okay? and, and they exercise that authority over those underneath them. This is how things work, and it's about getting put in authority. And that's kind of what James and John for sure want, right? They want to be put in that prominent place uh, of authority in this like, new kingdom administration that they expect to be coming from, G- from Jesus, right? And he's like, that's not the right way to understand what's going on here, okay? This is not how it works, Okay? The kingdom views power differently, it views people differently, and it views those things as Christ does in love. Okay? He continues on, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you want to be great, Within this kingdom, that I'm bringing, correct, I am bringing this kingdom, but if you want to know what it looks like uh, to, to be great inside of this kingdom, you need to take all your preconceptions and turn them on their head, okay? You need to, it needs to be upside down because the greatest of those in this kingdom are the ones who give themselves up for others, just like I am doing in the establishment of this kingdom, okay? The thing that makes this kingdom even possible is me drinking the cup on behalf of my enemies, okay? And so if you're going to live within this kingdom, the one that I started, right, you're going to live in that way too. That's what it looks like to be a part of this kingdom. Okay? It's not to fight for power. It's not to, to look at greatness as something to be achieved and to be flaunted in front of the rest of those in the kingdom. It's to serve others. That is what makes one great, okay? If the, if the central character of this kingdom is someone who, who gets killed on a cross, which is like the most shameful way to die, in this time period, then what do you expect about what it looks like for you to live in this kingdom as well? Okay? Okay? Living in this kingdom is about sacrifice, it's about forgiveness, it's about love, it's about denying our feelings and desires sometimes even for the benefit of others and for, for, to follow our Lord Christ. Okay? This is what it looks like to live in this. Okay? This is how we judge and how we make sense of morals in this kingdom. So let's, let's follow in the footsteps of our crucified Lord and Savior today. Okay? Let, let, let's add, let, that, let that be the way that we live as well. Let, let's let that inform how we view righteousness in this very moralistic age that we live in. Let that be the way, the lens through which we view everything. Let's be people who follow Christ in servitude, in love, in giving ourselves up for others because he gave himself up for us. We're going we're gonna to enter into a time of communion and worship now, just like we do every Sunday morning. We close this way. And we, 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 we do communion every week because um, we are reminding ourselves of the gospel. We are reminding ourselves of Christ giving himself up uh, on the cross uh, on our behalf, right? Th- there's a reason that we do this act, that Christ himself gave us this act uh, to do every time that we gather together. He says, if we continue on in the book of Matthew, in, in chapter 26, in the, in the Last Supper, he's telling them, then he took the cup, he'd already taken the bread, but he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
Okay, so we remember Christ drinking the cup on our behalf by drinking a cup every Sunday here. And we invite everybody who, who follows Christ, um, whether or not you're a visitor or a member of the, of the church, we don't have any members yet because we're very young. So no one's a member here. So everyone can come on up, okay? Basically is what I'm saying. And we invite you up to, to, take, uh, to take the bread and then drink of the cup. And I want you to really kind of think about Christ taking on the cup of God's justice for you. Okay, I want that to be, be kind of your, uh, your thought process as you're coming forward today. All right? we'll, we'll take a time of worship during that as well. And, and then we have uh, you know, one other way that we talk about worship is, is also by giving. So if you feel so led by God to, to give to Res City, there, there's ways to do that just kind of in the back on the other side of the curtain from the sound booth there. Okay? But let's enter into a time of prayer and then head into worship. Uh, Father, we praise you because you sent your son, Jesus, to be our just judge, one who doesn't judge us based on our righteousness or our, or our, or our ability to find correct morals, Lord, but, be, but who, who gives himself up for us, who, who takes the cup of wrath that is deserved for all of us, Lord, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory, glory of God. We have all uh, exchanged the truth for, for a lie, God, whatever that lie may be, we have all done this in our lives. And, and instead of acting towards us in the ways that we would have expected you to, God, uh, we, we find that you give yourself up for us in your Son. And Lord, we praise you for that today. I pray that we would be people who, who are consistently praising you for that and then living in that kingdom as we go forth from there, from here on this Sunday and every day, God. Make us, make us people who who are conscious of that and who, who read our Bibles and live Christocentrically. We pray all this in the name of your crucified and risen uh, Son, Jesus. Amen.